everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg, your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hi, everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I read a blog on the Times of Israel website and think, I really want to meet this person. That's the case with our guest this week on Times Will Tell, Mark Shinar, who wrote the moving blog, Broken Roads, Leadership, Authenticity, and Sexuality. The blog discusses how, as an Orthodox father, husband, and educator, he came out of the closet a year and a half ago. We'll hear segments of the blog throughout the longer-than-usual episode. First, a little bit about Mark. Dr. Mark Shinar has been a Jewish day school administrator and head of school for 20 years and has worked in Jewish summer camp for more than 25. Today, his main focus is on helping schools shape cultures that inspire within its administrators, teachers, and students a willingness to be vulnerable, to take risks, and to live lives of courageous authenticity and empathy. Mark made Aliyah in 2017 and lives in Modi'in, where he and his ex-wife are raising their four sons. Let's hear a little bit from Broken Roads. Broken Roads, Leadership, Authenticity, and Sexuality by Mark Shinar. It was an otherwise normal Sunday in January when I had gotten a long overdue oil change, a haircut, and came out of the closet. There are a lot of balls in the air, even when your world comes crumbling down, and truth be told, I've never been much of a multitasker. There wasn't anything special about that day that compelled me to send Lauren a can we talk text, but I did. And that's what I would have said that the dominoes began to fall. Nowadays, I think it would be more accurate to say that's when the pieces started to come together. I have a lot to say about the life I could have lived instead of this one, but since most of the decisions we make tend to divide up into either-ors and if-thens, It's no surprise that mine hurled me down a series of rabbit holes, each one connected to the choices that came before. Becoming religiously observant, going to a Jewish high school, studying in Israel followed by Yeshiva University, where, among the many pre-rabbinate or business majors, I studied English literature and theater. Duh. And ultimately, working and teaching in an Orthodox summer camp and day school. I followed these paths, and whether purposely or subconsciously, They wove my life's narrative tightly together. In doing so, I've done the very best I could to avoid facing within myself what many of my childhood bullies already knew. And although unsophisticated, their vocabulary, gay, fag, homo, was effective and painfully laced with truth. Because they harshly named it for me, I had, up until recently, come to terms with the fact that I never would. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate that as well. Where am I finding you today? I live in Modin, in Israel. Okay, fantastic. So we're speaking together because of a blog that you wrote for the Times of Israel, and our listeners will be hearing the blog throughout our conversation. And I have been uh, wanting to do a podcast for Pride Month, and I found your blog so moving. Can you tell our listeners just briefly what it is about? Absolutely. Uh, I came on Aliyah in 2017 from New York City with my wife and four sons, my four children. Uh, We, up until 
uh, our Aliyah, we lived in California and Riverdale, but lived uh, a very kind of normal modern Orthodox life, uh, sending our kids through modern Orthodox day school. And I myself am a modern Orthodox uh, educator, principal, head of school. And we came on Aliyah in 2017 for lots of reasons, which included some philosophical and others. I had an opportunity to open up a school here in Israel. Uh, along the way in the last four years, I think Aliyah in a lot of ways destabilized me and I lost some of the anchors and some of the structures that kept me together in New York, both professionally and personally. Uh, and as I was finding myself a little bit more untethered and, and having a harder time keeping those pieces together, I um, started to embrace the possibility that uh, my sexuality, which I had known since I'm eight years old, that I'm a gay man. Well, at the time, a gay boy. Um, but I never really anticipated or identified that as a possibility or an option or a life for me. And so I made a series of choices about, um, since I'm as young as eight years old, about keeping within a very kind of strict, structured context. Uh, I became Orthodox when I was 13, for example, as part of a process to choose a lifestyle that was not going to be gay. I don't know that at 13 years old, I could have articulated that as clearly or as psychologically soundly, but I made lots and lots of choices. And those choices wove themselves into the next series of choices and the next series of choices. And one day I woke up having everything I had always wanted, uh, a family, a career, a community, uh, a religious identity, Sionut, Zionism, all the things that I had wanted, I was able to check off those boxes. And yet somehow joy... Um, health, mental health, all of those things were still eluding me uh, and were becoming harder and harder to keep up those pretenses. Initially, I blamed that entirely on Aliyah. Uh, and so when I kind of started the work and the process by which I am on to get healthy and to become more authentic and become more complete with the kind of person I am and who I wanted to be, it turned out, I'm saying kind of passively, although that's not exactly right, but it turned out that my sexuality mattered a lot more to the wholeness of my being than I would have given it credit. Now, I think there's a lot to unpack already, so I'm just going to stop you here. And I think for many of our listeners, they'll say, what, an eight-year-old? There's no way that an eight-year-old can know something like that about it. But me, speaking as the mother of a gay child who is now 18, we knew way back that he was definitely uh, going to be gay. We hoped that he would express himself in a very natural way. It turned out with him that he uh, came out of the closet in eighth grade. So actually, when you were going into orthodoxy, he came out of the closet. Because again, this age is an extremely pivotal age. And so I want to just talk a little bit more about your turn towards orthodoxy at the age of 13. What was your first exposure to it? So I grew up in uh, Atlantic City, New Jersey, which was not a very rich Orthodox community, but it was a very intensive Holocaust survivor community. So my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. They lived around the block and there was a very robust Holocaust survivor community at the time growing up in the 80s and 90s in South Jersey. My grandparents who were not Orthodox or re identified religiously at all owned and operated a kosher hotel in Atlantic City. And so there was a lot of exposure to... Um, holidays and, and, and orthodox practice, despite the fact that growing up 
we ate bacon every Sunday morning, but we had, you know, Pesach. You couldn't even look at a piece of bread or else the whole house would come crumbling down. So there's a lot of conflict and a lot of uh, anxiety around religious, religious identity, but most of it was filtered through Holocaust. And because my father is also Israeli, uh, filtered through Israeli culture. Uh, I went to Jewish day school, a very small Jewish day school in South Jersey. Uh, and through eighth grade, ironically, I was one of nine children in the class, eight girls and me. And so I was the only boy in the class and I have only sisters growing up. So I didn't really have a lot of friends that were boys and I didn't have a lot of opportunities to kind of engage in what one might call standard or stereotypical boy games or boy behaviors, or I just didn't, um, and it, nor were they interesting to me. Um, but I, I grew up in an environment where it was a predominantly, you know, female social circle and group. And I went to Jewish day school. My older sister went to Atlantic City Public High School following eighth grade Jewish day school. And she would come home every day and tell me these horror stories of what it was like to go to public school. Now, I don't know if those were real or those were my older sister, who's three years older than me, just being an older sister, who would say things like, well, when you go to Atlantic City High School, they'll just beat you up when you get there. And I, who knows, you know, what kind of story she was telling. She turned out to be pretty great. So I'm not sure. But all I knew is my 13 or 12 year old self said like, oh, I don't want to get beat up. And I was already very, very vulnerable. And I felt vulnerable because kids would call me names growing up all the time. You know, you act like a girl, you run like a girl, you throw like a girl, all this kind of old and, and even terms like, you know, you're fag, you're gay. There were, those were terms that I'd heard and I was hyper scared of. And I really, and I certainly would never speak to my parents about it. So I had all these notions in my head of like, wow, I'm in a Jewish day school and that feels small and safe. I was involved at the time in NCSY, which is a kind of an orthodox youth group that my elementary school had access to in New Jersey. And I said, wow, if I become orthodox at a young age, I don't have to go to Atlantic City Public High School. And I don't have to kind of carry that line of fear into high school. And I can kind of stay in this cocoon bubble. And that will probably work for me and kind of keep me together. And so I literally became Orthodox overnight. My parents took me for a McDonald's dinner the day before I became Orthodox. And then the next day I put a kippah on my head and said, okay, I'm going to be Orthodox. Um, and I was. And my parents, I think, always assumed that that would be a phase that would, you know, run its course. Uh, and somehow within the Orthodox community, I found friendship and community and stability that I was looking for, and it never really did phase out as a result. So I assume then that you went to an Orthodox high school, and then you were mostly with boys at that point, correct? So in ninth grade, I went to an all-boys high school, and that really didn't work for me. Um, there was just a cultural tone and sense, and, and it was a little too to the right of where I was or understood. And this really had very little at the time to do with my sexuality. And it had everything to do with my general feeling of like, do I, I'm not an Orthodox kid and I'm now in this really more right-wing intensive yeshiva environment. So by 10th grade, I switched into a co-ed 
Orthodox yeshiva high school, which had more of a centrist leaning to it. Although whatever that meant in the 1990s, um, we still didn't talk about sexuality in in high school. It wasn't it wasn't what we'd identify now as a safe space for any kind of diversity, being whether we're talking about sexuality or learning or socioeconomic or social emotional. They just didn't exist as much. Schools certainly weren't talking about it as much in the 1990s. At least as a student, I didn't anticipate, I didn't perceive that that to be true. But I did go to Yeshiva High School and then I went to Yeshivot. I went to I went to sem, you know to a gap year in Israel for two years, Shana Alf and Shana Bet, before going on to Yeshiva University. So I did stay within the system. And then you began running the system. In fact, you became you became an educator yourself for these more liberal Orthodox high schools, though. Correct. That's right. Not not purposefully, but uh, but one can't help but notice that the two schools that I ran or was involved in running in the United States was on either coast, one in Oakland, California, and one in Riverdale, New York, and both certainly have much more, um, you know, centrist liberal leanings and are more open communities towards that level of diversity. I recognize the irony almost of the fact that I was married and moving to San Francisco, California, and was playing the role of straight and couldn't, you know, San Francisco in my mind seemed like, uh, you know, a, a playground for what my life could have been, but I wasn't in that world. So I kind of stayed outside and looked at it from the outside looking in. Um, and yeah, I became at 27 years old, the principal of Oakland Hebrew Day School in California. Even before we started having kids, I was married already, but but my kids weren't born yet. And then ultimately came back to Riverdale and went to SAR High School, and I had taught at SAR Academy prior to moving to California. So SAR was a homecoming for me in a lot of ways as well. Hi, Times Will Tell listeners. We're glad you're with us for Times Will Tell, our weekly Times Visual podcast. You should also check out our daily briefing, the 15-minute podcast dropped every Sunday through Thursday, in which we speak to our fellow Times of Israel reporters and correspondents, covering the very latest news and headlines. You can subscribe to The Daily Briefing wherever you find your podcasts. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Living a version of my life that I assumed most people would have wanted to see, I embraced a series of complex choices, ignoring the voices that heavily and constantly pressed down on me. 
These gremlins have been fueled by the possibility that someone might discover that I'm a fraud, that I'm not who I say I am, that I can't be what I've promised I'd be. It's hard to describe the amount of work it takes to keep that all locked away, especially when my vision was cloudier and my back was up against the wall. The last 20 years have been filled with immeasurable blessing and success, with each road leading me to the places where I imagined I wanted to be, despite the fact that the satisfaction and joy that I've worked so hard to achieve has always eluded me. By getting married, I denied one authenticity in favor of another. I wasn't right, but I wasn't wrong. And this is a nuance that my family and I will have to grapple with for the rest of our lives, especially now that they've been thrust into a new life that they had never asked for or wanted. The roads we walk lead us to the next, and then the next, and then the next. But they led me to an end. So I've chosen to start digging down and building up, creating a new path for the years ahead. Although I could never imagine a life that wasn't this one, I've paid a significant price for it. The things I carry are the grief and trauma that come from years of hiding, and also the tools and supplies for resilience that I've collected along the way. So throughout this whole period, you recognize in yourself, or at least that there is a part of yourself that is is gay, that is attracted to men, that is not living the life that you perhaps want to be living it. Are you speaking with your wife about this as well? Great question. Um, I've known I'm gay with the, with with certainty for as long as I can remember. It wasn't a part. Maybe there were times where I was saying things like, well, maybe I'm just kind of jealous of how that person looks. I wish I looked that way. And maybe that's what that is, but it's not about sexual attraction. I wanted to get married so badly. And I, I really love my wife. And I say that in present tense, my ex-wife now, but I, I love her dearly. We did not talk about sexuality zero times. Um, the first time really considered talking, our, our first time together was our wedding night. We lived a very kind of orthodox life. We lived what we call Shomer Nagia, which means like we didn't touch before getting married. And that was religiously very acceptable in our social circles, but extremely convenient for me. And I embraced that convenience entirely. And she was always somewhat confused by it. But given that I was a Jewish educator and working in camp and working in Orthodox day schools, it just, that persona was so easy to hold up. Uh, and then when we got married, I'm shocked at what I didn't know about sexuality and intimacy as a 25-year-old who got married. Um, and I knew on my wedding day, which was meant to be without question the happiest day of my life, I knew that I was experiencing trauma. I, I felt I, I felt trauma. I still kind of can attach on to that feeling so many years later, 20 plus years later. It was um it was choice, meaning I felt like I had a choice. I felt like I was making a choice, but I also felt like I was going down a path I would have to walk to my grave with. And I honest to God couldn't latch onto like happiness even on my wedding day, which was something I had planned and wanted so deeply and badly for myself. And, and my wife and I, um, in so many ways, were so good together. And yet in this massive way in which she was completely in the dark, we were, couldn't have been further apart. And that took its toll in so many ways throughout the 20 years of our marriage, especially once our youngest was born nine years ago and, and, and our lives were no longer about creating kids, you know, and, and having a family. And then we were just kind of looking and saying like, wow, this, 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 cha this chasm is getting wider and wider between us. Why? And we never even spoke about it until 
until the day I came out to her a year and a half ago. I want to just drill down a little bit. You're walking into this uh, gilded cage where you see through the bars this life that you could be leading, but you decide to close the door and, and to make the best of the situation for sure and, and to create this amazing family with your partner. So when you did come out and, and speak with her about it, what was her reaction? She had no clue at all? So we we had known for for a long time relatively speaking, that our marriage was rocky and that there was there was a distance. Neither of us are angry people and there's not a lot of fighting in the household. There was not a lot of anger in the household. There was a lot of chilly distance. And so our, our lives together became very transactional. Uh, who's taking the kids? Who's picking up? What's for dinner? Do you want these people to come for Shabbat? Should we go to this trip or that trip? Right? It was, it was those kinds of conversations, which anyone who knows anything about marriage, lots of marriages become those kinds of transactional marriages. But uh, from the outside looking in, we were in a lot of ways so perfect. A strong couple raising four I think very competent young men to be emotionally engaged, to, uh, plugged into who they are as people, and and to talk a lot about feelings and empathy and kindness, and that that was our our, our table, and we simply didn't engage in those conversations for ourselves. There was a point where I said to where we had said, you know, we need to go into couples counseling because our marriage is falling apart, and we weren't talking about it. And I felt like going into couples counseling was like the death knell because I could either go to couples counseling, pay a lot of money to continue lying, right? And talk about our communication strategy and how we could be better at, at, at living the kind of life that we want or should be living in our forties, or I would have to speak truth. And I was not nearly prepared for that. So I checked myself into personal therapy and with the, with the express goal of trying to figure out, should I stay in Israel or should I go back to New York? Because if we go back to New York, I can put all these things back together. And, and, and that's what it was, was me holding on so dearly to what strategies do I need to do in order to get all these pieces back into the box? And with the help of a very, very, very competent and very talented therapist, it took me about three sessions before I came out to her. And again, picture it, I'm 45 years old at the time. And it is the first person, including myself, that I say the words, I am gay out loud to. And this was my therapist and I was shaking, violently shaking and, and so scared that just by saying it out loud, I was indeed making it true, which I knew it was. You asked me about that night that I told Lauren and I, and I there's no, I, I kind of hinted at this in the blog. There was no real reason why I chose that day. I, there was nothing, I, I didn't sit with my therapist and say, okay, on Sunday, I will say to her, I woke up that morning and I did get a haircut and I did get an oil change. And then I texted her and said, we need to talk. And I don't know why, but I was compelled. I was ready. And that maybe is true for other people, but it's definitely true for me. There's just these moments where you say, I don't know why, but I know it's going to happen. So if it's going to happen in six months from now, it might as well happen now. What am I waiting for? Um, and we spoke and I came out to her. Her first question to me was, why did you marry me? Why did you marry me? Not, how could you lie? Not, not how could you do this to me? Not uh, just, why did you marry me? And it was painful. It was a painful question. It was such a fair question. It was such a good question. Um, it was a kind question in a lot of ways too. Uh, and so that yielded a discussion 
which was about I married you because I, I, I do love you. And I wanted a life for us that I really believed in 2001, A, we could produce and B, I could control and C, anything other than that would have sent me off into the oblivion. I had known people in my world who had come out of the closet in 2001. They disappeared as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if that's how they would frame it, but they didn't show up the next year in camp and they didn't show up the next year in school and they didn't show up the next year in our social gatherings and whatever it is. And I was working so hard through my teenage and young adult years to build community and establish myself within a context of community And I saw all of those things at at 24 or five years old being like, just, I wasn't the head of school at those times. I wasn't the the guy who has been in camp for 25 years. I wasn't all those things, the father of four. I I wasn't Mark Shinar. I was just starting. And I really believed that I was on this crossroad at 24, 25 years old. And if I came out, I would have, I'm sure I'd still be standing today, right? I just wouldn't, this narrative wouldn't exist. And I wanted this narrative so badly. Um, I still do. I just realized, you know, along the way that you can have everything you want in life. You just can't have it all at the same time. And um, I got so many of the things I wanted in life, but I lost so much as a result. So I couldn't sustain that, even though I would have assumed 20 years ago that I could have. I have, over the years, spoken to my children and students about embracing their self-worthiness and authenticity. Ironically, up until now, I haven't granted myself that same courtesy, and for that, I take responsibility. Let's talk about some of the blowback. Obviously, you said yourself, you are now divorced. Yeah. How are your sons uh, relating to this new piece of information about their father? Yeah. My second blog, actually, which I haven't put out yet for lots of reasons, um, is all about my sons and, and the experience of telling the kids. So, so there, is, there is something to that because a large part of my experience has been thinking about how this reality of coming out of the closet and being a gay Orthodox man and being a gay Orthodox educator, how those things all weave together. And in a lot of ways, you got to put your money where your mouth is when you're talking about raising your own children, if you're talking about educating other people's children. I didn't have very clear expectations for what telling my sons were gonna, was going to look like other than the fact that I was so sick for probably about four or five months before telling the boys. I have four boys who are now ages 17, 17, 14, and nine. So when we told them they were 16, 16, 13, and eight. There are very few moments in life where you can point to that day and say, okay, that's the day where everything will change. I don't know what it means, but I knew that telling Lauren didn't mean that the world knew. That could have been something that she and I could have shouldered together. And, and we could have made decisions that were very different. We could, right? There's a lot of families look a lot of different ways. And Lauren and I could have made a lot of decisions that said, fine, you're gay. We'll pretend we've made it this far. You do your thing. I'll do my thing or not. I, I don't know. But those were all on the table. But we knew that once we told the boys, that was 
that we couldn't unring that bell. Telling the boys meant telling the world because we weren't going to ask these four children to carry or shoulder a secret for us that was a so much not theirs to carry and be such a bad educational message that I'm going to tell you a secret. Now you walk around with it. I mean, the, anybody who knows anything about education knows that's not what you're going to do when, if you're telling children big news like this. And so when the, up until the very day when I, when we told the boys and I say we, because Lauren and I did it together, um, up until the very day when we told the boys, um, I was sick in ways that I can't quite describe to you, um, that they, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I could barely breathe. I got I just lost so much um energy and and joy because I will say now on this podcast so deeply underestimated my children and their capacity to face hard things and their capacity to love and to um get it. And a large part of that, I give credit to, to 2022. And a large part of that, I give credit to Lauren and me and how we raised those boys in the world we raised them in. But we sat down and we told the boys. And that was basically, my mantra was the same thing I said to Lauren. I, the opening gambit was, as since I'm eight years old, I know I'm gay. That was the opening gambit. It was not mommy and I are getting a divorce and we want to explain why. Because we all even thought that was a deliberately poor educational direction. We weren't getting a divorce because I was gay. I am gay. And we're getting a divorce. And the, the, that nuance felt really important to us. Um, and they reacted a whole lot of ways. One of my 17-year-olds threw his hands up and said, I got to call my therapist. She's going to love this. And you could see him already starting to write his memoirs. And... <laughs> The, you know, the 14-year-old just couldn't stop laughing. He just laughed just kind of awkward and uncomfortable laughter. And the other 17-year-old was stunned into silence. And the, the, the eight-year-old had put his hands over his face. And, and, and he, he wouldn't look at us for the rest of the night. He would talk to us, but he walked backwards with his hands over his face, not fully appreciating or understanding the sexuality piece, but really getting that mommy and Ava were getting a divorce. That really, that, and he couldn't fully understand that. But we deliberately made a choice to tell all four of the boys together at the same time, largely because we wanted them to have that information at the same time, and largely because we wanted them to be there for each other and for them to see how important it was that we are a family, regardless of what this family looks like. We are a family. We are always going to be a family. And mommy's always going to be mommy. And Abba's going to always be Abba. And we are always going to be the parents. And we are in this together. And you are brothers. And your responsibility is to take care of one another. And we, um, we understood that the conversation would be iterative. It was not one conversation. It was weeks and weeks and weeks of conversations. And then eventually they were ready. We didn't, I didn't come out of the closet publicly until they were ready to tell their friends. Um, and they had to be ready collectively. It was, you know, the, the person who wasn't ready was always allowed to have a veto. Um, and it was several months after I came out that the eight-year-old, now nine-year-old, decided that he wanted to tell some of his third-grade friends. And that was a new kind of conversation about what that meant, especially because we're in religious schools here and he's in third grade and what people do and don't know or are willing to say or not say about sexuality um, and dealing with this, the Israeli system also. And I had this, this crazy urge to just be like, protect, 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 protect. But I also at the same time couldn't say to him, no, we don't talk about that with third graders. 
because we did talk about that with third graders. We do talk about that with third graders. And so we talked about the differences between secrets and privacy and secrets. This is not a secret, but privacy means we don't go into the middle of the classroom, you know, and say, hey, everyone, my dad's gay and <laughs> have a great day, you know? And so we kind of worked with him and, and his and his teacher, um, who was lovely and respectful and asked great questions. Um, and, and he ended up telling, he had this list of 10 or 12 friends that he wanted to tell, but after he told two or three and received very, very fine responses, he felt like he had said enough and he wasn't ready to talk more. And that was also very interesting. Um, so the kids each in his own way, um, last week was, was Tel Aviv pride. And one of my 17 year olds said, I'm going to Tel Aviv pride. And I wasn't going I, 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 that was felt a little too much and overwhelming for me. I said to him, why, why are you going to Pride? And he said, well, I'm proud of you and I want to support you and it's fun and we're going to go. And so... You're killing me. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> crying. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. Kids. Um, yeah. my, wow. kids, my kids are... I, They're just regular kids. They really are. They don't pick up their clothing off the floor. They leave wet towels on the bed. They don't wash dishes. And they're kind of mean to each other when they're playing PlayStation. They're just regular kids. No one wants to walk the dog. But when, when the rubber hit the road and you said, okay, what's, what, what kind of people are we dealing with here? Um, we, uh, we hit the jackpot, I would say. Let's discuss work. Imagine that was a bit of a different reaction because being homosexual in an orthodox environment is still not being paraded in the streets in most environments and it's not being proud of you for coming out. It's more of shock and dismay, I would imagine. So definitely not shock and dismay, I'm happy to say. Um, there is a movement now and, and people and people are riding that wave on on mental health, especially post-corona. Um, and there is, a, there is an understanding right now that authenticity um, and truth and vulnerability um, are all courageous acts of leadership. And there is space for that in our environment, in our world. So I'll say a couple of things. One thing that made it very easy for me to come out as a head of school is that I'm currently working for Alexander Moss High School in Israel, which is a pluralistic school. And so sexuality didn't butt up against in any way, shape, or form any sort of religious sensibility. And so for their purposes, I have to say that the universe somehow landed me at Alexander Moss High School at this time in my life um, It was also nothing short of a miracle because the reality is that I didn't have to contend with it at such a deep level. Um, I think partly my blog, which you read and, and, and this kind of inspired, uh, when I wrote it, it wasn't news to me. I had come out of the closet publicly a year and a half ago. And yet somehow my own naivete around the world, and, and I, I say that really with, uh, as, a, as a part of my own learning process, It came out, it came out literally. Um, and I was surprised by the reactions, which were mostly positive, at least the way I understand the world, is people who are positive will tell that to your face and people who are negative will tell someone else behind your back. And that's pretty much how, how it operates. Um, but I was surprised by the newsworthiness of the blog. 
I had thought that this was just an old story and I was just framing kind of where I was a year and a half ago because I, once I came out of the closet a year and a half ago, I, I did crawl into a hole and kind of stayed very quiet for a year and a half because I was really focusing most on my own mental health and the, the health and well-being of my family. And then I wrote the blog and it became like news again. And I don't want that blog to come across as having some sort of platform for what I believe orthodoxy should do or shouldn't do around sexuality or what I believe orthodox institutions should say or shouldn't say about sexuality. I understand full well, by virtue of the choices I made, the life I live and the profession I have, I understand full well how nuanced and complex this issue is. Uh, I would be it would be in, disingenuous for me to come and say now, now that I'm out, I want the Orthodox movement to, you know, address the pronouns issue and address marriage equality and address adoption or, or, or surrogacy. And I want these things. I want to get married and I want to live in the Orthodox community and I want to come to camp with my partner and I want all of these pieces to kind of fall into place. And, and it's really important for me to say, so it's in context, um, that is not my agenda. That is not what I'm interested in seeing Orthodox schools and, 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 and shuls and camps do, because I understand full well how Orthodoxy works, and I understand full well how complex this question is. At the same time, Mark, wouldn't you imagine that there is space in the world, or at least in schools, or some kind of communal environment where kids who at eight-year-olds know that they're gay— and happen to be orthodox, that they are allowed to talk about it, that they're not afraid to talk about it. So that's what that's, I think your question is exactly what I'm looking for. That's what I, you know, that's why I decided, by the way, to, you know, I'm no longer as of the end of this month working as head of school at Alexander Moss High School, not because Alexander Moss High School, as I indicated before, wasn't anything but wonderful and supportive, but because I've decided that I want to move into a more coaching and consulting space, given what makes me new, what makes me unique, given the realities of my life journey. Um, uh, that's why I'm so much more interested in talking about creating authentic, safe, healthy spaces. I, here's what I know. I, I don't know what orthodoxy will do for my community, for me, for, for the kids that are coming up the pike. I just know that I don't want anyone leaving orthodoxy because of something we said or we did or, or, or we, you know, didn't acknowledge. I, it, it, Amanda, what, what makes things so ca- complicated for me is I, I don't hold on to the word regret too much because on the one hand, do I wish I lived in a world and an environment where 20 plus years ago I could have come out and saved myself and spared myself so much trauma, grief, pain, loss, loss of intimacy, lo- and the loss I created for my, my now ex-wife. Um, do I wish that that was all true? Of course I do. The answer is yes. Do I regret for a minute those amazing kids that we brought into the world, this life that I built for myself, the work that I was able to do for thousands and thousands and thousands of students along the way, um, and in some ways perhaps have been, even closeted, have been a, a positive role model and a guide for them along the way and create safe spaces for them. I don't regret that for a minute. What do I want? I want our schools to be places and our schools and our communities to be a place where we don't have to hide. People are going to make all kinds of choices and those choices are going to work for them or not work for them ultimately, but there are reasons why people make the choices they make. 
I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other on any individual person's journey. I think that that is extremely um, personal and, and must be individualized. But I chose to stay in the closet because I felt like I had no choice other than to stay in the closet if I was going to stay in the community. If I could change anything, I would have allowed the person in my shoes to see there is a world where you can come out of the closet and stay in this community. And there's a world where you can stay in the closet and perhaps get other benefits of the community. And we can't necessarily integrate all those pieces, but, but it's all there in front of you. Now let's kind of think about what to do. Children are such blank slates in so many ways, but at the same time, they definitely reflect their culture and, and the houses they come from. I know anecdotally for my son, after he came out of the closet, uh, we live in a community that has a mixed religious and secular uh, school. So it's both together in one school. And some of the kids were saying to him, it's against the Torah, you are you know, a sinner and things of that nature, which is definitely reflecting a different concern that than our household reflects, shall we say. And and these are kids who are 12, 13 years old. How do you make a space when already by then they're formed and they're prejudiced against? Yeah, I think that, um, that we have a responsibility to surface those things and talk about them much more. As a literature teacher, I think I did a very fine job bringing in LGBT voices and characters into the classroom and have those discussions when it wasn't about anybody specific, but it was about the narrative itself. I think it's totally appropriate for a Torah teacher to walk in and say, listen, we're going to do something on Kiddushin or on marriage or something like that. And I want to just acknowledge at the outset that this is a very heteronormative conversation and it doesn't necessarily apply to our gay friends in the room or people that you know that might be gay. Now let's move on into the we're about to learn. I think that there are so many tiny little things that we can say that don't make it about, oh, Mark Shinar is the gay kid. Let's make sure he feels comfortable. But let's just start changing culture by just changing little tiny nuances in our language. We've done that for years by changing school applications from mother and father to parent one and parent guardian two. Um, you know, we could do that in so many ways by just acknowledging for half a second um, that the world is is nuanced and complicated. And yes, the Torah has something to say about a lot of things. <laughs> the Torah has something to say about a lot of things that we, um, that we do and don't do. Um, I personally have never felt that that pasuk in, in, um, in Vaikra is the thing that is holding me up. My issues were always so much more about social integration and being a part of a community. It wasn't a halachic debate internally for me. That might be good or bad. That's just the reality of where I was. I know other people are kind of trained to believe it's a halachic debate, but yet they don't have the same halachic angst over 50 other things that are wrong in this world. And so I think as educators, we have to remind people that the world is complicated and people are complicated. And, and the more we introduce that level of diversity in non-threatening ways, I think the more people start to say, well, wait a minute. I actually like that guy. I like that character. I understand the complexity. I understand the nuance. Or, or fine, yeah, what you're about to teach is only for, for straight kids. But by definition, what that means is that there are gay kids. They do exist. Um, and so even if you're not teaching a halachic sugya to me, um, I understand that you see me nonetheless. 
And I think that the answer to your question is so, um, we can do such small things and it will make such a big deal to people that just simply want to be seen. I don't need you to fix the Torah for me. Um, I don't need you to change the Torah, the halacha for me. I just need you to see me and to see my value. And I spent so many years, Amanda, believing I wasn't worthy of joy and I wasn't worthy of love and I wasn't worthy of intimacy. And, I, and Or if I was worthy of those things, then I wouldn't be worthy of community or friendship. And none of those things are halachic issues for me. They're, they're about something that's so, so much more social-emotional and I think we can hold both those things in our hands at the same time. It's complicated, but so is everything else. Uh, and I think that we can do that much better if we start in our schools. Because right now we've done, I think, an even better job with our eight-year-olds to our 18-year-olds. It's a safer space. It's a safer world. We've done a pretty, pretty good job moving the needle. Not saying we're done, but we've done a good job moving the needle for our eight to 18-year-olds. I'm still interested in what's happening to our 25 to 45-year-olds. And that's my personal experience. But of course, if we can shift the needle for our eight to 18-year-olds, we can only assume and hope that by the time they become the adults uh, running the room, um, that that needle will be shifted even further. Again, what does that mean? It means an acceptance of ambiguity. It means a worthiness. It means authenticity. It means respect and kindness and empathy. Those are the values that are most interesting to me. Um, and those are the ones I hope to teach and help schools figure out how to integrate into their cultures. Mark, thank you so much. It's been mind-opening. I really appreciate this conversation. I'm so glad. Thank you. This was uh, important. Important for me too. Through this blog, I invite you to join a conversation about challenging assumptions, surfacing truths, and talking about how we get from there to here. In some ways, I imagine it will resonate. In other ways, it might not. Either way, I'm pretty sure that there is enough room in this world for all of us and all our stories. So it's time to get to work. so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel and thanks to our producer Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.